and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Hi, it's Mary from The Narrator's San Diego. In celebration of the 100th episode of The Narrator's podcast, each of the four hosts have chosen a favorite story to share with you. You've heard from Ron and Aaron, the Denver hosts. So now Robert and I will each share with you one of our favorite narrator stories. Thanks, as always, for listening. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrator's Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrator's, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Moving to San Diego wasn't easy for Robert and I. Leaving Denver meant walking away from a creative community we had both been part of for 20 or so years. I couldn't imagine, in my early 40s, making friends of the sort we had left behind. Then we started the Narrator San Diego and something magical has happened. Not only have we had month after month of incredible storytellers come through Tiger Tiger, but we have found ourselves in the midst of a circle of wonderful friends. This circle of friends and storytellers includes professional writers and academics, along with first-timers who've never performed in front of a group before. Every month, narrators regulars show up, knowing they will be in good, good company, while typically half the crowd are there for their first show. To say that San Diego has been kind to us would be to wildly understate the success of this show. It's a pleasure to share with you, on the occasion of this, the narrator's 100th podcast, one of our San Diego favorites, a talented writer and storyteller as well as a friend, Carmen Radley. Listen as she shares her story that she told on May 10th for the theme, Tongues. And if you find yourself in San Diego on the second Tuesday of any month, come say hello. I was 26 when the clipped warble of the former head of Her Majesty's government persuaded me to move to West Africa. This was early 2008. I was a teacher in Austin, Texas, and one day I got an email from the father of one of my students. He was on the board of a medical charity, he explained, and was having an event to raise awareness for it at his home. And could I come? Oh, and by the way, Sir John Major was a supporter of said charity and would be in attendance. Google told me that Sir John Major was the conservative prime minister sandwiched between Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. But honestly, had it been Neville Chamberlain's desiccated corpse, I probably would have, I likely still would have gone. I RSVP'd yes, and on the appointed evening, I drove to my student's Tuscan villa of a house. Soon after I arrived, our host prodded Sir John Major to say a few words. Major acquiesced, stood in the middle of the room, and began an anecdote about Mikhail Gorbachev, or as Major called him, Gorby. <laughs> One evening, Major and Gorby were commiserating over the wrath their respective constituencies harbored toward them, and Major told a story about bus lines and a riot in Piccadilly Circus or some such thing. But this was 1991, so Gorby was not going to be outdone. There was a man standing in a bread line, Gorby explained, and the bread line was so long that he turned to another ba- man behind him and said, will you hold my place in line? I'm going to go find Gorbachev and I'm going to kill him. <laughs> the man behind him eagerly agreed, and the would-be assassin ran off. Some time passed, the line inched forward, and the assassin returned. So, did you do it? The placeholder asked. Did you kill that sorry son of a bitch? No, the assassin said. The line was too long. (laughs) 
The anecdote was well-worn and irrelevant, but I was awed by, by the power this man had held, by his ease in front of the room, by that clipped warble that others have said, others have said sounds turkey-like, but which I, like a typical American, found charming. I listened rapt as he and the others who followed spoke of the charity. It operated a hospital ship that provided free surgeries in some of the poorest places in the world, and on that ship lived and worked an international crew of 400 volunteers, ranging from medical staff to sailors to housekeepers to cooks to the school teachers who taught the crew members' children. Still wrapped, I thought, I'll go teach on that ship. I'll go to Africa. I was being rash. I knew this was an attempt to escape things in my own life that had become unbearable, but I applied anyway. A few weeks later, my student's father called with the news that the charity had an opening as a writer in the communications department and wondered if I'd be interested that in that instead of teaching. I'd write stories about the work they did, he explained, and they'd use the stories to raise money to do more work. Awesome, I thought. I'm sick of teaching anyway. I told him yes. I planned to go for a year. I'd, in August, I'd fly to Liberia, where the ship would stay till December. At that point, we'd go to the Canaries, the Spanish islands off the coast of Morocco, where the ship would undergo inspections required by maritime law. After that, we'd sail back to Benin, a sliver of a country next to Nigeria. In July, I attended a mandatory three-week training at the charity's headquarters in Deep East Texas. There, I was stunned to find that everyone seemed to speak a language that I had never heard, one that turned out to be a very specific dialect of Christianese. <laughs> one teacher gave us a week's worth of lectures on spiritual warfare. Everyone else knew that this was a literal battle, battle between good and evil in the heavenly bodies. No one else batted an eye when he spoke of principalities which were geographic territories ruled not by an earthly prince, but by a specific, specifically assigned member of Satan's forces. <laughs> Nobody flinched when he explained that prayer warriors were needed to summon legions of God's angels to break the strongholds of the forces of darkness. But I was flinching inwardly the whole time, and after a week of devil talk, I had this sharp shooting pain in my neck and serious reservations about going. I knew this organization had been founded by Christians, but since proselytizing was not part of the mission, I thought it was kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation. <laughs> I brought my concerns to HR, and I was assured that I had nothing to fear, that this lecturer was a holdover from a former era. So there it was. It was set. I would go. I flew out of Austin on August 4th and arrived in Liberia the next day. Almost immediately after boarding the ship, I learned the person I had spoken to was wrong. I had a tight connection in Brussels, and my suitcase hadn't made it onto the plane. And because there were so few flights in Liberia, it would be several days before my bag arrived. When I told this to the head of the communications department, a very nice man who was to be my boss, he bowed his head and began praying for angels to hurry to where my suitcase was to surround it, to lift it up, to spirit it through the air over land and sea and onto the ship. <laughs> then there was a very kind and very bird-like woman whom I met at the training, but who'd arrived at the ship on the ship before me. The day after I got there, she came to my cab and explained that earlier that week she had been out to Dwala Market just up the road. 
And suddenly she heard God say, buy that package of underwear. (laughs) She thought, Lord, I don't need any underwear. I have plenty. (laughs) But she obeyed, and now she understood why. She handed me a package of three pairs of granny panties, several sizes too big for me and was gone. (laughs) It's not that I hadn't been exposed to what others might call a strange, what others might consider a strange theology. I was raised Catholic in the Bible Belt, after all, and at the time I was doing my best to hold on to that faith. But the way people there spoke about God and Jesus and spirits and demons was so different from how I conceived of the universe. I developed a small circle of friends, but for most of the year, I felt quite alienated from the community. And yet, I was not lonely, because almost any time I could walk down into the hospital, which occupied the entire third deck of the ship, and I could visit the patients there in the wards. On my first trip down, I met a little girl from Guinea named Nyama. She was there to have two benign tumors removed, one like half a grapefruit on her temple, and another that weighed more than 10 pounds and bulged down the back of her leg. I couldn't communicate with her verbally, She spoke an indigenous language called Capelli, but I could rub lotion on her hands or press stickers onto her forehead, and that made her smile. Other patients spoke Cru, Creo, Mendi, Grebo, Vi, but most also spoke Liberian English. It was the same but different, and to make communication easier, I internalized the variances. Instead of, I'm well, I learned to say, I'm fine. I said, small, small for slowly, Plenty, plenty to celebrate excess, to add O oh to the end of words. Heyo, sario, to suck my teeth. In December, we sailed to the Canary Islands as planned, and I often walked into the city of Santa Cruz alone, meandering, meandering along its stone streets. I spent each day in my head, translating, conjugating, searching for the words I learned in my high school Spanish class that I needed to order lunch. One Sunday, I went to Mass in a gilded chapel and listened for cognates. One night, while at dinner with a friend, two local guys said hello and sat down with us. I'd had enough wine that I tried to speak to them in Spanish. I tried to say the word language, which made them laugh. You mean la idioma, one explained in English. La lingua is your actual tongue. We sailed to Benin in January, and during the sail, the entire crew had a brief language lesson from the ship's IT guy who was Beninois. Benin was a former colony of France, he said, and most people in the city of Cotonou, where we be, spoke English. So he led us through the basics. Bonjour, ça va, ça va bien. He also told us that in Benin, there were more indigenous languages than in Liberia, but that the main one was Fon. And many of us who would hear the word Yovo lobbed in our direction. It meant white person. He he said we could expect children to blend the two languages in a common song. It went, Yovo, Yovo, bonsoir, ça va bien, merci, which translates roughly as white person, white person, it goes well, thank you. (laughs) I practiced basic French on a Rosetta Stone program on the ship. I wasn't good at it, my vocabulary was small, my pronunciation poor, but most of the Beninois people were patient with my efforts. The French colonizers had left their language, but they had taken their hauteur with them, it seems. 
I used it in the markets when buying mangoes and avocados and in the wards too. I used it to speak to a young patient named Carol or Carol. Carol had been badly burned when a kerosene lamp exploded. Her left cheek was a patchwork of dark scars. More laced her collarbone and reached down to her waist. But the worst damage had been done to her left arm, which was frozen by scar tissue in the shape of a question mark, her palm facing out. To free her arm from its bend, a plastic surgeon cut away the scarred skin and replaced it with grafts from her upper thigh. When I met her, her arm was splinted straight from her knuckles to her armpit. Carol was pr primarily a fond speaker, but she switched to French for my benefit. We played games, and when it was my turn, she'd shout, C'est toi! She'd look at the food they served, a coastal dish, which was not like the food she ate at home in the interior, and she'd shake her head and say, Pas bon, pas bon. But during her three-month stay, she picked up a few words of English, too. One day I sat with her as the nurses unwrapped her bandages, revealing her scarred skin, shiny and mottled, some places pink, others dark brown. She st studied the scaly grafts and the stitches along her forearm. Then she looked up and smiled. Very good, she said, very good. <laughs> I left the ship in July of 2009. Just before I did, I had what they called a debriefing with a counselor who warned me that going home could be strange. And I guess it was. I recall that everything was somehow at a distance, like I was in a light daze. In conversation, I heard words as if through water. Maybe I was busy wrestling with the irony of being moved to try to save the poor people of Africa by the posh lilt of a former British prime minister. Or maybe it was the fact that I was 27 years old and I had spent a year without pay on a hospital ship and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. But I think I was also tongue-tied. My head was a soup of other languages. There are moments when I wanted to shout, Eo, the French word for no, while wagging my finger. I wanted to say heyo when meeting a friend and sario to offer comfort. I had learned words that seemed better than mine and it was hard to let them go. Carmen Radley. Hey, this is Robert. We've had the good fortune to collaborate with a lot of other arts organizations during the last six years. And I'd like to share a story with you that comes from one such collaboration. Musica Sacra Chamber Orchestra, now known as Stratus Chamber Orchestra, contacted us in early 2014 about working on a show wherein we would pair storytellers with a full 35-piece chamber orchestra. Now, what storyteller wouldn't want a soundtrack as majestic as that, right? We worked with the chamber orchestra for the better part of a year, and the results were two concerts in April of 2015. Ellen K. Graham wrote a story to accompany a piece called The Lark Ascending by British composer Vaughn Williams. The performance was structured so that the story and the music would weave around one another, and I can tell you that it stands as one of the most amazing artistic experiences I've ever witnessed. Ellen is an amazing writer, and the stories that she creates invite repeat listens. She layers her stories in such a way that you can listen to them several times and pick out some new layer or connection that you hadn't previously made. In that way, her stories play like a favorite song would, and that you can keep getting more out of it the more familiar you become with it. Now, I could honestly talk about Ellen's stories for days, but I'll let her performance here, accompanied in part by the Stratus Chamber Orchestra, do the real work. 
because we don't have the rights to play the full Williams piece, I beg of you to find it on YouTube the minute Ellen is done and listen to it with Ellen's words still rattling around in your brain. It's a pitch-perfect melding of story and song and an emotional tale told by one of my favorite people. Enjoy. Baltimore Harbor, summer, 1982. The water near the docks is crowded with boats, freckly families on sailboats, pontoons loaded up with tourists. Farther out, pleasure boats give way to industry, fishermen returning from the morning trawl. Still farther, tugboats and freighters, and then just along the blurry blue line of the horizon, ocean liners. My older sister nods at me with approval as we pump our scrawny legs in their knee-high athletic socks against the foot pedals, piloting our paddle boat through the Crayola blue water. The wind ruffles my sister's feathered hair. The sea air is lusciously heavy to our mountain lungs like a too-rich dessert. The sky reels with gulls. The chumps on the shore may be smothering in the July heat and humidity, but not us. Among the chumps on the shore are our parents, two tiny figures rapidly receding from view. We draw parallel to a freighter painted to, painted to resemble a grinning shark, all jagged teeth and a bloody red mouth and a leering cartoon eye. I begin to notice that we are almost beyond the semicircle of the bay. I don't know what prompted us to turn around and go back, but we did. When we reached the shore, our parents were not angry. They did not lecture us about safety. They did not ask us, what were you thinking? That's not the kind of parents they were. They seemed glad we decided to come back. <laughs> that was the year we drove to the East Coast all the way from Colorado. This is something that we did. Our parents decided they wanted to go somewhere, so we got in the car and we drove. First, the cast of characters. Mother, Francophile, former Girl Scout camp counselor, went away to college at 16 where she wore black turtlenecks and saw foreign films and theaters thick with cigarette smoke and the smell of old world sausages. Father, menacence man, music lover, former golden boy, fixed cars and wrote poetry and went jogging every other day in his street clothes, sometimes including a black wool beret. Sister, imaginative, methodical, fierce, Overachiever beginning shortly after birth. <laughs> Unafraid of dead animals. <laughs> Me, homebody, equally devoted to Little House in the Prairie and fantasy novels, dressed as an executioner for Halloween in the third grade. <laughs> Aspiring mime. To our schoolmates, uh, my sister and I were as odd as immigrant children with our short hair and our petite blouses, the peanut butter and our sandwiches so virtuous and unadulterated it ripped holes in the equally virtuous bread. <laughs> A childhood friend once remarked how there were never any toys at our house and how sad that was. Is it true that we had no toys? The fact of the matter is, we enjoyed things like turtle waxing our dad's 68 BMW and putting on Mannheim steamroller records and dancing around the living room. Toys were just uninteresting approximations of real things. The four of us were dissimilar but strongly bonded by our shared experiences like army recruits. We had a, an ancient green and yellow canvas tent that leaked in the rain, inadequate sleeping bags, and a finicky Coleman stove that had to be lighted just so. We hiked in tennis shoes and we skied in jeans, and when we finally outgrew the BMW, we climbed the mountain passes in a white Chevy van our dad nicknamed the milk truck. 
On one occasion, after driving all night across the desert, we, my dad pulled the van into the parking lot at Santa Monica Beach, trying to wedge its unwieldy girth into a space there among all the El Caminos, and some beautiful shirtless man yelled out, Hey man, nice ride. It was, actually, but it didn't have air conditioning, so the following week when we cut back through Death Valley with the desert heat blasting through the open windows, our mother used a washcloth dipped in melted cooler ice to dab our fever-hot brows. I propped my forehead against the tinted glass and watched the asphalt rushing by. Every so often there'd be a blackened rectangle on the shoulder where a car had overheated and burst into flames. We arrived in campgrounds late and drove around in the dark looking for a place to pitch our tent. In South Dakota, it was raining in suffocating sheets. We managed to put up the tent in the dark. And over the course of the night, the water penetrated the floor of the tent and then our sleeping bags and then eventually our pajamas. When the sun came up, we saw that we had pitched our tent at the bottom of a steep hill <laughs> and the water had carved countless channels through the earth down the slope directly under our sleeping place. Well, we'd wrung out our wet things and, and hung them around the campsite to dry in the sun. A busload of delighted Japanese tourists stood on the ridge above, documenting our every move. <laughs> in Minnesota, we arrived after 11 and starving, so while we pitched the tent, our mother lit the finicky Coleman stove and made spaghetti. The air was hot and humid and riddled with mosquitoes as though mosquitoes had spontaneously generated from the air. They stormed our eyes and nostrils, crowded into our mouths, and we tried to speak. In the muggy dark, you couldn't see to swat. We sat down to eat our spaghetti in the watery light of the kerosene lantern. Is that pepper in the noodles, or...? <laughs> there was no way to eat one thing without the other. When we objected, our mother said something like, Oh, it's just some extra protein. <laughs> yeah. After so many nights on the road, eating spaghetti and cheese and crackers, and sleeping in the, um, outside, how we longed for the scratchy, cloyingly aromatic sheets of the Motel 6, or more importantly, a hamburger from a bona fide fast food restaurant. In rural Kansas, our parents agreed to treat us to a restaurant meal at a place called The Wagon Wheel. Regrettably, The Wagon Wheel served only Chinese food. <laughs> rural Kansas style. <laughs> when we weren't camping, we slept on the floors of the houses of our far-flung cousins. There was a California contemporary right underneath the Hollywood sign where they had a baby grand piano and little dishes of Jordan almonds on the side tables. Upper East Side apartments and Upper West Side brownstones. We were always the scruffy country mice. We once told a Chicago cousin who was forever talking about the Sears Tower as though he had personally built it from scratch that we'd only recently gotten electricity in Colorado. <laughs> he believed us. He shook his head at the horror. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> in New York, my older sister, who'd only gotten her driver's license about a month before, ended up, through our lack of understanding of eastern seaboard traffic, rocketing down the New Jersey turnpike into Manhattan. Imagine the delight of the pre-Giuliani stoplight window washers when the mud-spattered van with the Colorado plates and the teenager at the wheel pulled up to the light. 
It was in New York. Someone finally broke into the van. They left their muddy footprints all over my spiral notebooks, and they stole the stereo, my sister's brown university sweatshirt she had just purchased following the campus tour, and the finicky Coleman stove. <laughs> Our parents crowed with pleasure, imagining it exploding in the thieves' faces. <laughs> One summer in high school, my sister escaped to France for a month. I wrote her a letter via her host family detailing blow by blow the New Mexico trip we took in her absence. Night after night of, of damp monsoon camping in the leaky tent, the wet firewood that refused to burn and sent choking smoke directly to my eyes no matter where I sat, the insane Vietnam vet that kept us up all night with CCR blaring from his truck, the mad bull that walked through the campground at dawn, emitting a low growl of displeasure and swinging his massive head from side to side as we cowered in the tent, barely breathing, waiting for him to pass. This was pretty much the beginning of the end. Shortly after that, my sister turned 18 and left Colorado pretty much for good, and that was the end of the long-haul trips with all four of us. Aging had already begun to take its toll. When we were kids, everything was either an adventure or, an, or, or a challenge to be collectively met. But as adolescence crept in, so did the discontent. There was one trip when I was 14 that took us to Montreal, but I hardly remember being there. I was so preoccupied with the petty intrigue seething among the friends I'd left behind that I couldn't see what was in front of me. Stop walking around like a zombie, my mother said, and tears welled up in my eyes because I was a zombie, numb and absent, controlled by outside forces, in this case a band of teenage girls with fishnet stockings and rat tails. I've fallen out of touch with all of them. Stories of these childhood trips baffle my husband. He was an Eagle Scout in Texas, where spending time outside is pretty much an endurance trial like a sweaty cage fight between man and chigger and cottonmouth and heat, heat, heat. He asked me once, why didn't you guys just go home? <laughs> the Eagle Scouts did not have this option, but we, ordinary civilians, did. Because that's not what we did. That would have been a violation of our creed, whatever that was, had we been born a hundred years from now. We would have packed up a dinged-up space pod. I can see my dad with his toolbox and the jumper cables, my mother and her headscarf packing up the cooler and set out for the visible universe. Because we breathed in the smell of decaying aspen leaves, burning cedar, the enveloping mist at Niagara Falls. We swam in Lake, Lake Michigan and Champlain, in Walden Pond and Oak Creek Canyon where the cold knocked your breath out. We stood on nighttime beaches, listened to the Pacific at Big Sur and La Jolla, the Atlantic at Thunder Hole. Teton's Grand Canyon, arches in the blistering heat, Bryson Zion in the snow. We wandered among the graves of my father's Quaker forebears in Nantucket and tried to link our arms around the trunks of redwoods. 
We saw Alphabet City and Maxwell Street. We saw the Four Corners and the House of the Seven Gables and the consuming darkness of solitary confinement at Alcatraz. Once, I woke up in the middle of the night and I looked up at the sky uncomprehendingly, filled with something like terror, like an Old Testament terror the believers feel before their God. Looking up at the Milky Way, there's a photo of us from that 1982 trip. It's on the Staten Island Ferry with the Statue of Liberty in the background. Mother inordinately glamorous in her sunglasses and a striped top. Father looking dreamily out over the water. Sister quizzical as her beach blonde hair catches in her mouth. Me looking sidelong into the camera, my hair orderly in its two damp braids. Oh, my ragged, beautiful galaxy of four. When we had that van loaded up, it's like we could go anywhere that no road, no map could contain us. My mother always says, no one knows anyone. We're all alone. And she's right, because I long for the ones I love. Even when I'm with them, there's always a locked door, a secret chamber where you can't go. My father always says, we're all one. There is no separation. And he's right because my memories and those of my families are so intertwined. I don't know where mine end and theirs begin. My mother writing from 1960s Rome on the back of a Vespa. My father, the young soldier, stepping off the plane in Guam. My sister, lying alone in her tent in Montana, listening to the rain beat down and the bears moving through the underbrush. Things I have never seen, but nonetheless, I know. My sister always says, The universe is random. There is no plan. And she's right, because the only certainties are gravity and birdsong, the desert and the mountains, the ocean that opened up around us as we paddled, thrilling to our own power, anchored by the parents on the shore as we paddled out of sea. Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our intern is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Lego Pete's, Greater Than Records, Sexy Pizza, Sexbot Comedy, From the Hip Photo, and Breckenridge Brewery. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. And for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.